Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. A major concern in the aftermath of U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is a potential for persecution of religious minorities there. Many people fleeing Afghanistan will be doing so because they fear religious persecution. And as Christians, we have an obligation to serve all people facing these desperate types of situations. One way to begin is to listen to the voices of refugees. Our guests today are here to talk about the Religion and Resettlement Project, which is part of the Religion and Forced Migration Initiative at Princeton University's Office of Religious Life. The project aims to better understand the role of religion in the lives of refugees. So here to talk with us about the project, we have Catherine Clifton, who is coordinator of the Religion and Forced Migration Initiative. She graduated from Princeton in 2015 and then pursued master's degrees at the University of Oxford, Oxford in refugee and forced migration and public policy as a Rhodes Scholar. Thanks for talking with us today, Catherine. Thanks for having me. And then to talk with us about how the USCCB is collaborating with Princeton on this project, we have Todd Scribner. Todd is Assistant Director of Education and Outreach for the USCCB's Department of Migration and Refugee Services. Todd, thank you so much for being here. And also thanks for setting this up. And as we just learned, um, this is kind of like the three-year anniversary of this collaboration on this project. So it's it's fun to be talking um, on talking with you all about this on, on such a nice occasion. Hey, thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mary. So first of all, um, uh, Catherine, I think this one's probably mostly for you. Um, why don't you just give us the basics? What is the Refugee Resettlement Project? What are its aims? You know, what kinds of, what are the kind of activities, the things that, it, that, it, that you guys do? Thanks for the thoughtful intro, uh, Aaron. Thanks for having us, Aaron and Mary. Um, the Office of Religious Life at Princeton organized a conference in 2017 called Seeking Refuge, looking at faith-based approaches to forced migration, and uh, in order to acknowledge uh, and showcase the vibrant, critical role faith-based organizations play in supporting refugees around the world. Um, and due to palpable interest in this topic and um, our continued kind of appreciation for its salience, we launched the Religion and Forced Migration Initiative to improve our collective understanding of this intersection of faith and forced migration. And then in 2018, we received a four-year grant from the Luce Foundation. So like you said, we are three of four years into this uh, to hone in on the US context and the role that religion plays in the lives of refugees as they resettle and integrate into the US. So the premise of this project is really built on the belief that the role that religion plays in refugees' lives is complex, uh, multifaceted, and just deeply overlooked or understudied. Although the majority of refugees identify as strongly religious and represent the plurality of the world's religions and are mostly resettled by religious organizations, there hadn't yet been any kind of systematic study or training to address this interplay. So that's what our project, the Religion and Resettlement Project, is designed to respond to in order to strengthen qualitatively support for refugees by raising awareness of and sensitivity to refugees, religious identities, their uh, religious practices, 
communities, ways of organizing, and also to assemble this supportive network of diverse agencies and stakeholders who are invested in refugee resettlement. So in terms of what we do, we've organized in-person and virtual kind of conversations and symposia that bring together refugees and scholars and folks who are working with refugees from resettlement agencies and others who support refugees. Uh, we have this oral history project, which will be featuring some during this conversation. We have student internships uh, for two months over the summer. Uh, students will work at faith-based organizations that resettle refugees, various other kind of research projects like creating a, a map of organizations that support refugees across the country. Those are some of our main programs at the moment. Yeah, if I could, if I could sort of just dive in as well and just sort of fill out some of the things you said and, and sort of just reemphasize certain um, components. I mean, I, I would just really reiterate the the ways in which you know I think a lot of this focus is just underappreciated and under researched, and it's kind of surprising. And you know, it sort of begs the question as to why sort of the role of religion is underappreciated or under researched in the lives of you know in a major program and in the lives of of people who benefit from it. Uh, who are very religious on the whole, you know, what kind of biases are built in. That's sort of not the focus of our of our project, but it does, I think, beg the question as to kind of the place of religion and sort of the popular understanding of a whole variety of, of areas. Um, but another component that we're also interested in um, is sort of the role that religion plays in the communities of reception um, in terms of, of, of refugees and, and other forced migrants. So, I mean, what kind of how do um, religious organizations and local communities who are themselves religious respond to the resettlement process? Are they welcoming or are they not? Uh, do they support refugee resettlement or don't they? Because you can see that there's a, a diverse response. I mean, kind of the, kind of the classical language that um, a lot of religious resettlement organizations use, particularly Catholic and Christian, sort of welcome the stranger rhetoric from you know, from scripture, uh, that it's sort of, it is uh, incumbent upon us to be welcoming to the stranger and to migrants and to refugees who are coming into our, our country. And yet, you know, not to make this political, but over the past, you know, several years, we've seen a lot of resistance to the refugee resettlement program, um, oftentimes by individuals who are themselves religious people um, and who have a commitment to, you know, various churches and traditions. And so we're just as interested as to what is the what is the religious logic that they bring to the table? How do they understand um, their own religious, if at all, uh, leanings? You know, as it comes to engaging migrant populations, refugees uh, included. You know, particularly for this case. And this is really, a, you know, this is a very much a neutral uh, kind of project in a way. You know, I mean, this is very, uh, you know, we want to know why. What is the rhetoric? What are the symbols? What what is going on here? So it's not, you know, preachy or moralistic or judgmental, but really we're trying to understand the dynamics as they actually play out, both for those who welcome and those who resist. Um, and, and I think that's, that's really important because I just don't think that there's, there's much of an understanding and, and more can be built on that. I don't know if you want to share in terms of like the communities of reception also, like, I mean, have you, what are some of the things you started to find on that? I, I would wonder if, if part of it is that when it seems like it's sort of impersonal, is where you would be more prone to see kind of like you're there's resistance to the idea of people we don't know coming in. But I think in a lot of these kind of communities, 
I don't know if like when they actually, when people are working side by side or when there's more personal kind of relationship, if that changes the dynamics. And then if something like this, this project you're doing where you have the oral history, if that makes a difference in terms of like actually hearing people's stories. So it's not just sort of an idea or it's not, you're not looking at just from an institutional perspective. Like, I don't know if that makes sense, but um, I don't know, any comment on on that, like what's going on or what you've started to find there? Yeah, sure. I mean, I can I can lead the way a little bit. And Catherine, I, I know, has been uh, deeply involved in this as well, and she can follow up. I mean, I think that's true. I mean, one of the things that we found, you know, even outside this project is that one of the best ways to um, kind of kind of create warmer reception of, of migrants in general is to personalize them. You know, too often the political rhetoric and the media coverage of sort of migration related phenomenon um, becomes very um, sort of removed and abstract. And it sort of, it doesn't really look at the person, the migrant as a person. And so I think that when um, you're able to provide a more face-to-face -face encounter um, with those who may be resistant to migrants for reasons that aren't necessarily related to the migrant person itself, himself or herself, that you can actually see a change in attitude. And I think that the oral history has the potential to do that um, because you really hear the stories of the, the individual persons who are being resettled into the United States or who are being you know, provided asylum because of the situation that they're confronting uh, in their home countries. And Catherine, I don't know if you have more to add on that or not. Just that we totally see that as a really important part of this initiative, the idea of changing hearts and minds alongside the infrastructure change that's inevitably coming with the new administration right now. You know, the raising of the refugee cap, the welcoming of 100,000 Afghan newcomers, all of that is well and good. But if we continue to have hateful, unwelcoming spaces, it's not going to go well. And so we hope that some of our project, namely the oral history component, will have an effect on this more qualitative changing hearts and minds um, as folks uh, are, are confronted with or have to listen to um, a, a refugee telling their story in their own words on their own terms. Well, we've kind of jumped ahead a little bit. So maybe just to back up about that, we, we've referred to the oral history project. That's one of the core components of the initiative. Um, we just started talking about it without really explaining what it is. So can, uh, Catherine, can you talk about uh, this component, what's it all about? What is it? Um, you know, how did you guys decide to to go do this? Absolutely. So, from the start, we observed that efforts to understand refugees' challenges, their experiences, not only neglected the role that religion might play in their lives, but also those efforts tended to disregard refugees' voices or decentralize their voices altogether. So an important part of this religion and resettlement project has always been trying to collect uh, oral history interviews. So these are in-depth conversations, open-ended, meandering, based on, as I just said, the kind of the terms of, of the refugee themselves. So of uh, interviewing those whose religious and spiritual lives have in some way been consequential to their journey, their resettlement, their integration to the U.S., the conversations span far more than just their uh, religious identities. It's hard to even <laughs> sum up what, they, what they've what they delved into because they tend to last an hour or two. And we have over 170 of them from all of the major refugee flows to the US in the past 70 years. 
So from Holocaust survivors through Afghans who are being resettled. We typically don't interview anyone um, who's been in the U.S. for less than two years. Um, There's a sense of wanting to give someone time to really process their their journey and be more settled in the U.S. by the time we're we're asking them to speak about it. Um, But we do have, it just, it runs the gamut, the, the kinds of folks that we've spoken with. And we have about 40 or 50 undergraduates who've been involved in this in some way, either as uh, conducting these oral histories themselves or transcribing them, outlining them, that kind of thing. So some of the purposes of this are to create an open archive that can be used by refugee communities, that can be used by resettlement agencies, others who work with or advocate for refugees, also scholars, students, whomever, um, and and to provide an opportunity for uh, civic participation with refugees, um, give them the chance to really speak whatever they wish. These are not guided conversations. There's not a set list of questions for every for everyone. And then as an office of religious life, you know, to enhance spaces of dialogue, spaces of chaplaincy, spaces of deep listening within refugee communities, within scholarly communities, and across interfaith and intercultural lines uh, throughout the country. So it's a, it's kind of a wide, a wide mandate. We've also determined, or we, we decided that we didn't want this to be kind of a a data dump online. And so we want these stories to be heard, to be discussed and internalized by folks across the state. So we're working on different initiatives to try to activate the archive and try to pull excerpts, um, use them for stories. We've, We've begun developing curriculum that Um, curates different excerpts based on different themes with discussion questions and historical context, other materials um, for secondary school classes, um, history, literature, religion, politics, etc. And uh, this curriculum, we have single day sessions, we're working on kind of two week lesson plans as well. So a, a wide, a wide range there. And we'd also hope that it can be used not only by schools, but by places of worship, um, some, there are some senior centers who are interested in using this curriculum, other nonprofits. It's just, it's our hope for the stories to be, um, just to be heard widely, to be useful to, um, and used by many different audiences um, across the country, across the political spectrum. So that's the, the overview of the oral history uh, project. Yeah, I mean, one of the neat things I think of, about it, I mean, she's, Catherine covered it pretty exhaustively just there, but I mean, it's just the, um, you, you know, the the temporal and the geographic distribution sort of of where refugees came from and, and when they came in is really important. So I think as we look back, it's going to be a rich resource for, for researchers and others who are interested in this field to really look at what their... Um, you know, what are the commonalities? What are the differences between, you know, people who came from Germany and, you know, the 1940s or the 50s versus people who came from Afghanistan in the 2010s? It's um, so a really, it'll be a really, I think, a rich opportunity because we're talking about 170 plus interviews and I, they all, I imagine, go at least an hour, uh, about an hour, maybe a little bit more. So we're talking hundreds, potentially, once this project is done, it's hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of you know, oral histories that will be ripe for, um, all sorts of um, research and sort of distribution and, and sort of development in, in, in a myriad of ways from a very academic perspectives, you know, for college professors who are 
you know, doing this kind of research to a more on the ground sort of analysis for, for people who just do this kind of work on a day-to-day basis. So it's, it's, I think it has a real a lot of opportunity. Well, we have a couple of, of sample clips for our listeners to, to hear from the oral history. Um, and the first one I wanted to play, uh, it comes from Nargis Muhammad Makhdi, who is a refugee from Afghanistan. But to be clear, I believe this interview was done in 2019. So this isn't, um, th- this isn't like somebody who just arrived, uh, as you said earlier, Captain, that it's normally people who've been here for a couple of years. Um, but I wonder, Captain um, or Todd, can you just before I play the clip, I'm I'm going to play a clip where she talks a little bit about what it what it was like to worship in the kind of underground in this case literally because it was in a basement, um, but um, but in the sense of like having to worship in a in a situation where you have to be secretive. That's the clip. But could you say a little bit more about her background or what or her story? Um, Anybody to, just to just to give a little bit of context? Sure. So Nargis was born in Afghanistan, as Aaron said. Her parents, before she was born, converted to uh, from Islam to Christianity. So they faced religious persecution in Afghanistan, and later fled to Turkey. And Nargis herself came to the U.S. in 2012 as a high school student, um, and since then she worked at. Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, one of the nine resettlement agencies, um, and she pursued a master's degree in diplomacy, I believe, at Tufts. And one other thing to add is just that this story is currently featured on our Voices of Afghanistan series um, with other excerpts from about 10 oral histories we've done with Afghan refugees. Sometimes I'll call them narrators. That's typically what we call the people we're interviewing. So that 10 Afghan Afghan narrators who shared their experiences um, living in the U.S., coming uh, living in the U.S., living in Afghanistan, and, and their journey in between. Many of them worked with the U.S. military um, as, as special immigrant visa holders. They speak about religious identities, religious persecution, um, gender, employment, education, um, lots of different themes. So I'd urge folks to check out the Voice of Afghanistan series on our on our website. Well, let's have a listen. So for the most part, it was very secret. They wouldn't tell anybody. I see. Um, it was very secret. So even if we went to church, if you've ever heard of like homegrown churches or underground churches, that's where we, that's about where my family went to church. Yeah. Um, so you hear this term a lot, like in Middle East region where there's not a lot of Christian communities. You also hear it in China a lot because of the religion restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, the underground churches, that's where we went for like services or like Sunday morning events like that Um, but for the public like my parents wouldn't tell them if somebody asked you um, then you would say yeah I believe in God but you wouldn't necessarily explain Mm -hmm. you wouldn't necessarily say hey I'm I'm Christian yeah Um, because then you would just write on that spot um, you would die there's no other option like there's no other clear solution to it except that they will kill you wow um i guess like since we brought up like (laughs) underground churches i'm curious like um like how would you describe like your religious background and kind of how did you and your family practice your faith um in in your home country yeah so my family again uh because we my family was um 
first Muslims and then Christians. Um, culturally, we celebrated like Eids, which is like a Muslim holiday, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we also celebrated Christmas mm. um, and Easter. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like certain things, we wouldn't um, like... Um, communicated to the outside world as like oh these are my like religious holidays that I'm celebrating it would just be like well this is 25th of December I'm just doing something right yeah. or this is Easter I'm just just making a like you know a, a, a perfect meal or like a yeah. meal extra a few things on the table yeah. but you don't necessarily tell that to the people who are outside your household um, and in terms of like religious practices again it would just be within my own immediate family so my parents my siblings and I um, and sometimes if there was an outside a foreign pastor would come in um, to do a bible study or to do to lead like a a session uh, but it would mostly just be us yeah um, inside a basement where you would just like put um, um, boards or like foam on your doors and windows so that sound doesn't travel outside um, so that if you are playing music or if you're playing some video to watch or movie to watch, that it doesn't get outside. Yeah. Um, and you would be in the basement to do um, worship or do a religious service for an yeah. hour and a half. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I Like putting up boards and that's, yeah. it must just be like that dangerous. Yeah. It, yeah, it is very... I remember like, the first time um, we had a church service at my parents house yeah um because we had a huge basement and so the the local community decided that it was better to have church at our house my parents were like you know what like it's it's um it's risky and it's scary and it's dangerous but that's what our faith calls us to do to tell of the good news and to tell provide a space for other believers and christians to come yeah. and have a place and so my family was like well, we'll take that risk and we'll open our house in our basement to other Afghans who are who are trying to see if Christianity is for them um, to come and see wow I've been trying to wrap my mind around this project and just I've just this it's huge it's it's huge there's so much um Todd and Catherine as you were saying earlier there's the richness and depth and the potential to, to draw from this wealth of the, the narrator stories and, and, and really the impact of listening to that story, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that there would be people who are, you know, people from all spectrums of their approach to, um, on, on this issue of to what degree do we welcome people into this country and all of that. But it's, it's when you, when you humanize it like this, it really has a huge impact. I guess my follow-up question is, I mean, how does this connect to maybe Todd, like the broader work of in particular, like the church in the US, like the work of what we're doing here at the USCCB um, to um, educate on the teachings of the Catholic church on migration, refugees, that sort of thing. I mean, are you integrating some of these uh, stories into the work that you're doing? We certainly will be, um, you know, as as we move ahead. I mean, it's going to be a rich resource that we we definitely want to use in all sorts of ways. And it's kind of just like how does the, you know, what it can be used for is sort of the limits of your imagination in terms of what kind of forms. And so we're really happy to have this opportunity here today for this podcast 
Um, because it may be reaching out to a lot of people who don't necessarily follow our migration work. You know, I mean, it's religious liberty focused. But, you know, one of the things that it's, it's really important to emphasize is that when you're looking at, um, you know, kind of what is a refugee and who is a refugee, you know, religion is essential. And there's a ton of overlap that occurs between the work of our office and the work of kind of the religious liberty office in particular here at the conference. So the technical definition of a refugee, for those who do not know, is someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. So that's kind of a mouthful, obviously, but really one of the key elements that can de define someone as a refugee is someone who's persecuted because of their religious allegiance. So Christians, for example, overseas who are persecuted because they're Christians, you know, or have the potential to be, and they flee the country, in order to, you know, be able to practice their religion in a, in a safer environment, you know, could qualify for refugee status. Um, and that refugee status um, is taken up by the United States. Um, and, you know, there's a long process of security checks and background checks to make sure that, you know, that they are, they are who they say they are, that they have a verified reason for, you know, declaring refugee status. Um, and then they can be resettled here into the United States. Um, the Catholic Church and Migration Refugee Services alongside Catholic Charities um, has been traditionally the largest non-governmental resettlement agency of refugees um, in the world. So the church itself has been very involved for decades in this process. It really extends back, you know, formally, I guess, to the World War II and the displacement that occurred as a consequence of the war. But it really, you can see it, you know, even further back than that, you know, with the flight of Mexicans from persecution in the 1910s and 1920s who fled to the United States in order to, to find, um, you know, safety here. And the Catholic Church was very involved in that. You know, so the point is, um, there is, you know, just the idea of religious liberty is not practiced everywhere. We can take it for granted, but you listen to this, the, 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 the story that we just listened to, and you can really see that there are a lot of people who don't have the opportunity uh, to practice their faith in an open fashion. And we often take it for granted, as I said, and we shouldn't. Um, it's really something that we should um, cling to uh, voraciously um, because of its importance and its fundamental role in a person's identity. You know, to, to practice a faith where you know you might be killed doing so, and yet to do it anyway, is, it's, to say the least, admirable. And meanwhile, you know, sometimes I don't want to get up on a Sunday and go to church or whatever because I'm you know, I want my morning coffee to last a little longer or whatever it might be. You know, I mean, there's these, you know, these kind of contrasts that really make you, they make people rethink, you know, okay, where is my faith weakened? You know, where, where can I be stronger? You know, particularly given the, the, the benefits that I have as a, as a person of faith. So I think these stories, just to wrap up, these stories don't always just personalize the lives of refugees who are undergoing religious persecution overseas. They don't sort of just merely highlight kind of the important and, and really interesting ways that religious ideas and symbols play out in the lives of refugees and, you know, during their displacement and following their resettlement integration here. But it also can be provide a window into our own lives, you know, and sort of recognize what we've, what we may take for granted, what we may not appreciate, um, and where we can kind of improve our own practice of our faith. Yeah, well said, Todd. And, and also as a follow-up, I mean, we talk on this podcast a lot about the increasing threats to our own religious liberty in this country. So as I was listening, I was just thinking about 
I'm, I, I take for granted right now what hopefully 30, 40 years from, you know, hopefully we will still have the religious freedom that we do have in this country right now, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now. So it's just, it just really made me appreciate what we do have and hope, trust and hope inspire me to work towards keeping it, keeping the religious freedom that we do have. And also wanting to ensure that others, not just refugees in this country, um, welcoming them to, uh, you know, enjoy these freedoms in this country, but also towards spreading that idea um, towards other countries and that idea of religious liberty for all people. I thought that her story also was a good complement to uh, another project at, at Notre Dame that Notre Dame did a few years ago where they were looking at how different religious minorities um, handle persecution. And, and so they kind of categorized like different strategies for, for dealing with that situation. They weren't looking at any one particular faith group, but, um, you know, in any place where you have a minority religion. I'm hearing that on the one hand, the, the, the way of worshiping in secret was part of the strategy, but also still adopting some of the aspects of the dominant faith, because that's also just interwoven with the dominant culture. And just hearing it actually from a per, from a personal perspective, like you can kind of read these reports about these are the different strategies for that religious minorities employ when when they face these situations. But to actually then like hear hear from someone. I, I'm just thinking like this, this project, I think, complements other work like that to, to hear, you know, just how like how people do it. I wonder, Catherine, if you could say, I mean, because you're really in this. I mean, this is like, I'm sure you've listened to a lot of these. I, I get the impression just from what I read of your, the little bits of your resume that I that I have seen that you've been interested in these in these issues of forced migration um, for a long time. I wonder, you know, hearing these stories directly um, or directly from people, you know, how has it affected you? Have there been have have you changed your mind in different ways on anything or does it does it motivate you to keep to keep doing what you're the work that you're doing and just I would I'd be interested to hear your personal perspective of kind of having sat with these stories for a while now thanks for that Aaron obviously I can only speak from my experience and I do supervise about well about 30 students who have conducted these interviews um, Others have been involved in, in transcribing and outlining, and, and as, a, as a full group, we discuss kind of how we're affected by the stories, and, and people are affected in a, in a variety of different ways. Um, so we try to create kind of community and, and, and solidarity when we meet as a group for that, to talk through how, <laughs> to talk through it how happens. we're doing. <laughs> but any, just in terms of my experience, I find it really empowering to hear their stories of hope and resilience and, and, and gratitude, um, given how much they've endured, given how, how difficult their go in life um, may, may be or may have been. Um, and I'm usually full of gratitude myself for having had the chance to kind of be the recipient of their story firsthand. And um, inevitably, I also reflect on my own immense privileges and luck in life, which you know, it can sometimes teeter into guilt, but I usually try to keep it positive. And as you said, fuel it into 
motivation for this project in particular and life in general. <laughs> you know, despite despite all they've been through, these narrators really restore my faith in humanity more than conversations with almost anyone else. So it's a really special project to to be involved in. Do you have a personal favorite, um, one that's particularly moved you or that, that st has stuck with you? So uh, I have conducted 20 some interviews, um, sometimes multiple interviews with a single narrator. And of course, it's hard to pick a favorite. Um, the one that usually echoes through my mind the most in any given moment is the most recent. So I can say that my, my current favorite maybe is uh, someone I interviewed just a few days ago, uh, last Friday, an incredible Afghan refugee who fled in 1979, the, the Soviet invasion. He was facing political persecution. His name is Wahid Dilla. He goes by Wahid now to make it easier for English speakers. And he came to the U.S. and um, pursued college, uh, bachelor and, and graduate degrees um, and became a professor at the University of Colorado, um, teaching courses related to Islam and the Middle East. Um, and then he's also been involved in development projects funded by USAID and other organizations in Afghanistan as recently as last year, as recently as last spring. And uh, so he's continued to kind of return and have a, a strong connection to Afghanistan and, and help with higher education, particularly for women there. Um, and he also had conducted oral histories, actually, with relatives of his when he returned to Afghanistan, because there's a rich oral tradition in, in Afghanistan. There's a relatively low literacy rate. Um, so many customs and stories, um, lessons, that sort of thing are passed down orally. Um, so he had a kind of special appreciation for this open-ended, meandering conversation style. I think I maybe asked him 10 or 12 questions over an interview that spanned at least two hours, almost two and a half, I think. So it was. Uh, I just felt lucky to basically be, to sit back, listen, and 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 receive his his wise ruminations. I want to share one other little clip um, from just a, a little segment that that I that that I really liked or I appreciated. Um, it comes from uh, Basma Alawi. Uh, I wonder, Catherine, though, could you say a little bit about her background if you know it off the top of your head, like any context? So Basma grew up in Baghdad, where her family uh, identified both as Sunni and Shia. And then she resettled in Orlando, Florida in 2010. And she has since created an organization called Weave Tales, which is all about sharing the stories of, uh, of migrants. What I liked about this, little, this particular clip from Basma is that um, the way she talks about her experience well, what it what it felt like to be a refugee for a lot of us who who are not immersed in this world, you know, as I've kind of mentioned before, it can be easy to not think of it in personal terms, but to think of to think in just from the political or institutional perspective, you can start thinking of refugees just as like recipients of services and and fail to remember that we're talking about human beings. And so Bosman talks about how it feels to be in the position of having to receive when that's when you come from a family that's 
not been in the pos- in that position that that normally is a wants to give. And so um, let's let's just listen to a little bit of this. It's actually traumatic. <laughs> it's uh, because I mean I'm coming from a family who we give more than we take. So when you become refugee, you need to learn how to take. Um, it's really challenging uh, because when I moved to the U.S. in the first couple of months, I they rented me a space um, and they gave me a card to buy food. And it was really a really bad feeling. I mean, um, I mean, everyone goes through a really hard time, but I don't like that I, if I, I don't like that feeling that I, someone give me the way, like my living. Yeah. Um, it was really like, I don't know, my dignity was like, felt, I felt like it's touched. And what's even more bad that some of these kind of like the first couple of months benefits, but sometimes you need to fight for it. Like, and in its process, like if you want to apply for food stem, they investigate why you are applying and and um, you need to prove that you are, I mean, this is a system. So, I mean, I'm not judging anything, but it's like from my background, it was like, I don't want it if, if I need to go through all of that. I really don't. Ali, if there is a way we can find work as soon as possible, so we don't take any of this because it's really, um hurting my feelings um so i mean luckily ali found job right away i was the one who's struggling because of like i thought that i would work with my engineering career (laughs) in the beginning but uh yeah after a while i mean we didn't need any of that i mean i appreciate it and people need it when they come in it's just sometimes make you feel and i that's why i think it's a call not for just refugee resettlement agencies, any communities who's trying to help a refugee that really give and don't make them feel that you are giving them and like they need to fight to get it because there are people who are really not going to ask again and they rather go out hungry not, and not and rather getting something from someone. I just appreciated this. Um, I, I, I appreciate also her mentioning not getting to work in her engineering careers. I mean, it's fairly common for people to come in this situation they're, that, and they're trained to do other jobs and don't, you know, aren't able to find work or whatever it may be. And um, that, that there can even be a sense of shame and being and having to be in this position that she expresses this, like it hurt her feelings or she felt like her dignity was somehow implicated. Um, and just and sometimes and as Todd was talking about the political rhetoric and that sort of thing, I mean, it's just something that's easy to lose sight of that, especially with refugees, they, they don't want to be in the position that they're in. You know, I mean, that we're not talking about people trying to abuse the system. If anything, they don't want to be in the system. It's helpful, I think, to hear directly from people to talk about that perspective. Yeah, Aaron, I, I think you're right. I mean, and one of the, a couple of things really just on that point, you know, things can fall apart pretty quickly. You know, I mean, you can look at the situation in Syria where you had lots of people who were, you know, successful, you know, doctors and engineers and, and lawyers. This could be you could talk about a whole bunch of other situations. And then when the Syrian civil war 
occurs and a significant amount of displacement follows from it and people are forced to flee and those who are lucky and it's a very 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 small percentage of people who are actually lucky enough to be resettled into a country like the united states i mean something like 27 million refugees and less than one percent will be you know resettled into a, a third country ever um and so many will end up in you know refugee camps for decades sometimes you know with very little opportunity to do anything but for those who are lucky to get resettled into a place like the united states they don't have they can't just sort of be doctors again if they were a doctor say a successful surgeon in syria or elsewhere they can't just come here and do that generally speaking because they don't have the proper certifications and licensing and so anything that could sort of help to expedite these kinds of you know trainings and certifications licensing issues that would allow them to practice their art or their science, which would in turn benefit us, you know, as, as you know, and people living here who need their services would be, you know, really incredibly helpful. So that, that's one thing. A second thing is, you know, they're talking about, you know, taking and giving. One of the, I think one of the senses in, in certain quarters here in the United States is that you no know, migrants or refugees, they are just takers, you know, that they, they mooch the system they leech off of it and they don't really, um, you know, provide much. But we can look back at COVID-19 you know, and we remember all this talk about essential workers, you know, refugees in particular played a hugely important role in keeping the supply lines open. You have a huge impact in sort of meatpacking plants in the Midwest. Refugees fill a lot of those spaces and they were essential personnel, you know, that provided the, the necessities, need those that which is needed in order to keep the supply chain, you know, ongoing. Um, there are a lot of essential workers who are, you know, nurses and medical staff from other countries, some just migrants, some refugees, and they filled that role, which was absolutely crucial to keeping this country going during a time like COVID-19. Um, it probably wasn't appreciated prior to that, um, and hopefully it was, it's appreciated more now. Uh, we'll see how long it remains appreciated and isn't just forgotten again, you know, once we move on to the other side. But, you know, they, they, they do, migrants and refugees do contribute quite a bit. And that's just something that has to be emphasized, even if there is a period where they need our help, you know, in terms of their transition to living in the United States uh, into a new culture, a new economy, a new politics, and a new way of life. Well, I want to kind of wrap things up. And so I think just to, to bring us to a close, um, I'll, I'll direct this um, to Catherine, but Todd, you're willing to jump into if you want to. But uh, Catherine, just in general, you know, what are your hopes? And you can speak to this project or just be more general if you want to, your hopes for for how people of faith can can do a better job of serving immigrants and refugees. So for hopes, hopes and dreams, um, we're definitely not blind to the fact that refugees are used as these political tools and the topic of immigration is increasingly polarizing, toxic, what have you in the public sphere. And as I mentioned earlier, we're hoping that alongside infrastructure change, there will be this opening up of people's um, hearts and minds and, and homes and resources to, to refugees, to migrants more broadly. Um, but the process of changing public sentiment is tough and long lasting. And we need to really instill an awareness that the past few years just at least weakened the global system of, of refugee resettlement and, and supporting refugees. Um, so we hope that people of faith are able to appreciate the role that religion plays in the system, you know, socially, 
structurally and spiritually for refugees as they come to the U.S. and that that can usher in a welcoming spirit and that in amplifying refugees' voices and their stories, their perspectives, that we can just tap into more compassion for them and uh, a more hospitable environment. The program really was decimated, but from everyone who I met through doing this work over the past few years, um, I have so much faith in kind of those committed, compassionate folks um, to, especially at a local level, who are really doing this work, who are really resettling folks, um, to then collectively reflect on what's happened to uh, re-engage community members who may have been somewhat disengaged or disillusioned and to uh, rebuild the project. I, I would just add, um, if I can be brief, if that's possible for me to be, um, yeah, but I'll try. The, um, you know, from a slightly different angle, you know, it's just more the relationship to this program itself that we've worked on. It's been an incredibly fruitful relationship with Princeton University that I know I hope continues on for years to come. And I would really just hope that out of this, it's sort of an example of how organizations that may not normally work together or be seen as sort of compatible, um, you know, necessarily, uh, you know, see this as an opportunity where well, they, that there may be, there might be dynamics at play where you can actually form a fruitful relationship um, where you didn't think that there was prior. Um, I know that, you know, Princeton brings, you know, their research and their students and kind of their capacity as a sort of a, a research center um, and a mammoth figure in education. Um, and we bring a, you know, a pretty good stature as well, you know, being sort of the headquarters of the Catholic bishops with our reach to the Catholic charities and the resettlement programs and our work in migration um, and our situatedness in, in DC where we work on policy. And so it really benefits you know, different groups in different ways. And the outcome of it can be a, a really fruitful venture that I hope other other offices in, in the Bishops' Conference pursue um, and that we will continue to pursue both with Princeton and other universities and institutions that we may not currently be engaged with right now. Catherine and Todd, really appreciate um, y'all talking to us. I think it's been a great conversation. It's a really interesting project. I really appreciate appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, great job. Thank you. We've been talking with Catherine Clifton and Todd Scribner about Princeton's Refugee Resettlement Project. More information is available at religionforcedmigration.princeton.edu. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Thank you.